Church family, let's stand together now for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 will be our text for this morning. We're not going to read all that now, but just uh, the first few verses to get us started in the direction we want to go this morning. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. All the Bible is wonderful, amen? But this one of the great, great, great passages. Beginning in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? No better question could be asked, and no better person could the question be asked to. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Let's pray together. Father, may it be immediately apparent from the Scripture, we don't do this. We don't do what Jesus said. We don't do what the right answer is. We might know the right answer, but apart from the grace of God, none of us do this. None of us love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves. The whole point of the law is to reveal to us we don't do what we must do in order to live. But praise God Almighty, there is one. There is a law keeper. There is one who loves the Father more than anything, and there is one who loves his neighbor at great expense to himself. And his name is Jesus. And this is why we boast in Christ alone. We do not boast in our own knowledge, our own merit, our own good works. We boast in Christ. But Father, we pray you would use the Holy Scripture for its design from your perspective, that it's profitable. That, oh, sometimes it can harm us, but for our good. It can harm us to heal us. So, Father, may the Word of God um, be sharp and active among us. Reveal what must be revealed so that we can change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, you may be seated. This is the second Sunday in a series that we're calling uh, Devoted to God in the Digital Age. We have lived through, are living through, and will continue to live through as as a society and as a culture through a change that we're not going back from. You know what I mean? I mean, we're, we're not going, we, we know what this means, you know. Uh, most of you came here, you didn't ride a horse, right? I don't think anybody showed up riding a horse. You came by automobile. There have been some changes that once those changes take place, we don't go back to the way things used to be, even though some of us may wish very much that we could go back to the way things used to be. And that's true in the digital age. We're on the 10-year anniversary of the first Apple iPhone being uh, for sale in June 2007. And uh, we did this last week. We won't do it this week, but... Now, last week, I asked you to raise your hand if you have a cell phone with you right now. And last week, it was true. The vast majority of you raised your hand. Uh, we saw a few small little things. Uh, uh, research suggests that those with a smartphone are uh, apt to check it every four minutes. So I watched last week a little bit, and it's true, right? Not all the way across the board, but every four minutes, which means... At least five times, maybe even a little bit more, just full disclosure, before this sermon is over, you would be tempted to look at it. And so the first danger that we examined last week that the digital age presents us is the danger of distractions. Have you seen this in your own life? 
The digital age has brought distractions. Our devices, our phones with their constant alerts and their beeps and our tablets with their limitless options of mental, though often shallow, engagements leave us prone to live extremely distracted lives. Now, we know that in Jesus' public and earthly ministry, they weren't walking around with smartphones, so we don't want to stretch the meaning too much, but we saw Martha anxious and troubled about many things. Here's what we can say. Martha was distracted, and so the result of Martha being distracted, that she was anxious and troubled. And it wasn't too long in the midst of her anxiety and trouble, she was frustrated with her sister, and then ultimately she was telling Jesus what to do. That's where distraction leads us. Remember, Jesus said, one thing is necessary. The one thing that's necessary is not for you to check your social media feed 15 times a day, right? The one thing is necessary. He was talking about Mary, and here's his words. I want you to hear his words again. Mary has chosen. It's got to be a choice. Mary has chosen the greater portion, and it will not be taken from her. So in the midst of the digital age, one great danger is distraction. This morning, we're going to look at a second danger, and uh, the second danger is as powerful, I think, in this age as, the pre, uh, as, as distraction, and if you've got an outline and want to follow along with me, just right there at the top, it says this, a major danger in the digital age is we ignore our neighbors. That's where we're going to start. A major danger in the digital age is that we ignore our neighbors. A few preliminary statements. Saving faith. If you're born again, you really believe in Jesus, right? It can be described in greater detail than what I'm about to say, but this is what it is at minimum, right? Saving faith means that Jesus Christ is your supreme treasure. These are the terms that Jesus speaks of when he talks about being a part of the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who found a treasure in a field, and in his joy he sold everything he had. For what what reason? That in his joy he might have the treasure. Do you view Jesus that way? One of my favorite songs is, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. I think that's a great song of of the redeemed. Most of us, we can have a spoken theology, what we say we believe, and then there's a functional theology, what we really believe, as revealed in what we do. This is the testimony of Scripture. The clearest marker of what we actually believe is not what we say, but it's what we do. Our our actions reveal. So if you want to know where your treasure is, here's a few questions. We can use a technological prism, if you will. The television programs that we've watched this week, they reveal what our treasure is. Hey, you want to know what someone's treasure is? Look at their web browsing record. What's the history? Pages you've gone to, articles that you've read, right? Pictures that you've looked at online. These, the, the things that you've uh, invested your time in, that reveals your real treasure, right? And Jesus says, here's where, we're, here's where we're going, is that it's not possible. Please hear me. It's not possible to love God and then not love your neighbor. It's just simple. I know it sounds really simple, but it's, but it's clear as day from the Scripture. So Luke chapter 10 begins to reveal and paints a picture for us of what it really means to to love our neighbor. For example, just listen to this scripture. You don't have to turn there. Just just turn your ears to hearing 1 John chapter 4 verse 20. If anyone, if anybody 
says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. You know what I love about 1 John? It's just straight up, right? You, you, you just read it and hear the truth. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment, this is the commandment now we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we recognize the two greatest commandments underscore this reality, right? And we read the scripture, the lawyer gets the pop quiz right. How do you read the law? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God, verse 27, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, one of the most helpful Bible study uh, uh, perspectives that you can have is this. When it comes to the Gospels, the Holy Spirit designed that it, they, uh, the, each Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should be read the first time from start to finish. And every subsequent reading of the Gospel from that point on should be read with the end in mind. Does that make sense? So where's the whole Gospel of Luke going? We're going to Calvary, right? So we want to we understand the, how it ends to read here. Jesus is saying, I think, he's trying to reveal to the lawyer, you've got the right answer, but two little words. Do this, and you will live. But do you know what the truth of the matter is? We'll see it. Jesus makes the point in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He doesn't do it. And neither do I. Neither do you, apart from the intervention of God's grace. Well, uh, there's just some people who just can't let something go, and that's this lawyer. So verse 29, we'll read the whole thing now. But he desiring to justify himself. And friends, that's the default setting of every one of us. We think we can justify ourselves. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I love Jesus that he gives appropriate answers to questions. See, Jesus isn't afraid of questions, by the way. Know this, right? He's not afraid of your questions. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. So Jesus now asks him a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. You know, it's possible. This is dangerous, but we got to sound this alarm. It's possible to know the right answer without doing the right thing. Does that make sense? I mean, the lawyer, I mean, you get, you get a little bit of hint. Can we just be honest for a moment? He's a little too smart for his own britches, right? I mean, he wants to put, he wants to kind of converse back and forth with Jesus, and he's got it in his mind. I'm smarter than him, and I'm just going to expose Jesus in front of all this crowd that I'm really the smart one. Have you ever had a class with someone like that? You know, they, they would raise their hand and ask a question, but they weren't really asking a question. They were trying to show everybody else in the room how smart they were, right? That's what this lawyer's doing, right? Shoots his hands up. Jesus answers. Shoots it back up and back up, right? And that's what he's, what he's trying to do. He gets the answer right, but listen to me. Can I give you a loving warning? 
give me a few loving warnings. It's possible to have classroom faith, able to get the answer right in theory, but not in practice. And that type of faith, friends, is not saving faith. We're trying to say that we're not saved by faith alone. No, no, no. We are saved by faith alone. As Adrian Rogers says, though, saving faith, though, is never alone. Faith without works is dead. In other words, he knew the answer, but he doesn't do what the law says to do. And none of us do. So uh, danger of the digital age is we're so connected digitally that we're disconnected in our personal relationships, right? There's a danger in the digital age that fosters greater and greater separation from face-to-face conversations. Have we recognized this? Have you seen this, right? Uh, um, and so let me talk to you about in-person ministry. That's what we want to talk about. First of all, the traits of in-person ministry or neighborly ministry. Now, again, I'm well aware that Jesus teaches and ministers his earthly ministry in a time and place without our modern technology, and yet there is an undeniable and timeless principle here, and it's this true ministry means getting your hands dirty, your brow sweaty, your schedule interrupted, your comfort sacrificed, and your Savior will be glorified. In-person ministry is necessary because the fallen world is full of hardship and suffering. Now, friends, your goal in life doesn't need to be that you're free from the effects of the fall, but to enter the fray. It's what Jesus does. So self-preservation and security are not the ideals of the Christian. Somebody say amen. Self-preservation and my own comforts are not the ideals of the Christian, but rather self-sacrifice. Hey, Jesus is a master teacher. Who is it that comes there and passes by on the other side? Who is it? The religious people, right? The priest comes. The Levite comes. These are people who know the scripture. I mean, to be a priest, you had to basically have the Old Testament memorized, right? The the law memorized. And see, he's another example. He knows it, but he doesn't doesn't do it, right? So we got to take careful caution here that we might be most prone to knowing the right answer without doing the right thing. So let's, uh, let's see here some traits of in-person ministry. I mean, I kind of think if this story was taking place in the here and now, the, um, the priest would come along and see it, and uh, he, he, he would keep walking while he looks down at his phone, right? I'm on my way to, uh, to text somebody or to, you know, preach a sermon on compassion but not have compassion but 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 look here that's the first marker is that in-person ministry to our neighbors first of all is motivated by compassion see jesus um sets this up he's got one person then two people come by and then a third person comes by and uh there's one thing that the third person the samaritan has that the others don't so you'll see it uh verse number uh 31 Remember, the man's been robbed, he's been stripped, he's been beaten. They left him there, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. It's not that he didn't see him, right? It wasn't that he came up there and he just, he just missed him. No, he saw him. Where was it? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So he sees him pass by on the other side. 
Likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So the descriptions given to the Levite and the priest are the exact same, and then it starts the same way with a Samaritan. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here's what the differentiation is. He had compassion. Had compassion. Do you see it? Straight from the Scripture, right? Now, the original Greek word that we translate compassion, it literally means to suffer with. Something happened in the Samaritan's heart that hadn't happened in the priest and the Levite's heart. And it seems to be something along these lines. When the Samaritan came and saw the man beaten, left half dead, something clicked in his mind, and his thought was something along these lines. That could have been me. That could have happened to me. Didn't happen with the priest and the Levite. We're not given a lot of information on the priest and the Levite. Um, that... Uh, journey that Jesus speaks about. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road was notorious for being dangerous. Most people, as they traveled down that road, would go in a caravan for protection. I mean, the, the, the road goes, um, if you're going from Jerusalem to, to Jericho, you're going downhill, and so there would be hills that would surround the road, and robbers and thieves would hide in the hills and kind of do a, a attack, unexpected, if they found someone often traveling that way on their own. So maybe, I don't know, maybe the priest and the Levite, they thought to themselves, Hey, this guy should have known better than this, right? He got himself into this mess. He can get himself out of it. Now, I think that's the attitude a lot of people have when they encounter others in trouble. He should have known better than to come down this dangerous road at this time of day. We're not told. Maybe they thought he probably hung around the wrong crowd. He should have known better. His parents should have raised him better than that. Friends, thank God Jesus didn't have that attitude towards us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, amen? I want to talk to you for a moment on this issue of compassion. Here's a good definition. To recognize the suffering of others and take action to help. I like simple definitions, don't you? Here's compassion. Compassion is recognizing the suffering of others and taking action to help. And it's both parts of that definition or it's not compassion. For example, the Bible, when it speaks about compassion, it immediately connects it to action 100% of the time. We tracking together, right? Let me give you a few examples. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you, therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. See it? Connected to action. God's going to rise up, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. One of the other great parables of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son, says when that young boy was coming back to his father, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion. You know what the next statement is? Ran and embraced him and kissed him. Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38, you don't have to turn there, but it talks about how Jesus looked on the crowds as they were like sheep without a shepherd and had compassion. And you want to talk about doing something about it, going to the cross to be crucified for our sins. That's just a few. We could go on and on and on all morning about more verses about compassion. But in each case, each case, the compassion is connected to action. So what we want to know is from the Scripture's perspective, we don't have compassion towards people if we're not actively seeking to help them, right? So the traits of in-person ministry to our neighbors is it's motivated by compassion. Let me give you another trait, a couple more traits of in-person ministry. Second, second now, it's often messy, uncomfortable and inconvenient to our schedule so much of our digital age is none of those things i mean it's not real messy to click on a keyboard or scroll a screen is it but in-person ministry always is 
Look at these verses, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw me, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. You think that was messy? Pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. So now the Samaritan's going to walk, right, while the other rides. And the next day, this isn't, this isn't fly-by-night help, right? The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. A denarius was a day's wage. So two denarii, that's two days' worth of work. So in other words, it's no small measure. Gave them to the innkeeper. Said, will you give me a receipt? No, 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 that's not what he says. Gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when, you, when I come back, rather. Right? We just, we just realized some of the main reasons we don't help people, didn't we? Because it's these things. We don't help because we don't want to get involved in messy stuff, uncomfortable stuff, inconvenient to our schedule. That might have been some of the reasons the priest and the Levite passed by, right? Oh, it's a little too messy. I'm on my way to lead uh, worship. Can't do that now, right? Inconvenient to our schedule. Well, friends, I just aim to say things as simply as they can be said. If, in your life, you're going to live in such a way that you don't ever get messy, don't ever get uncomfortable, and don't ever have interruptions to your schedule, who can make the conclusion? You're not ever really going to help anybody. Not really. For many of us, these are the exact things that we're committed to. A life without messiness. (laughs) A life of comfort. See, the priests and the Levites have the titles, didn't they, in those days? Those were respected titles in those days. Priest, Levite, the titles of our own day, pastor, deacon, Sunday school teacher, Christian, or whatever title we may use means less than what we actually do. The world learns more about Christ, not from what we say we'll do, but what we actually do. Now, here's the best-case scenario. Best-case scenario is the words and the actions line up together. Amen? I mean, that's what it really means to be, really means to be a witness. One of the things that we learn, big picture, you zoom out a little bit. Uh, last week, we looked at Mary and Martha. If you've got a Bible open, what's the, um, what's the uh, story that Luke, in his orderly account in the gospel, records right after the Good Samaritan? Do you see it? There's a point to this, right? There's a point to this. One is a lawyer knows what he should do and doesn't do it. That's the first story. The second story is Martha, who's doing, 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 but not what? But not listening to Jesus. Do you see how they go together? These are the two great dangers for your life. It's to try to do and do and do, but not really in line with what Jesus has actually said, or to sit and sit and sit and listen, but not actually do, right? This is where the two great commands go together. I sit and listen to Jesus because I love him more than anything, and then in obedience to him, I go and love my neighbor as myself. So, so, uh, in-person ministry is messy, uncomfortable, inconvenient to our schedule. Next, it's costly. Costly to in, in terms of time, and it's costly in terms of material possessions. I mean, think of all the material possessions he gave up, his horse or his donkey, whatever he was riding, right? Cost of the stay at the inn. And then he makes a promise to come and pay more. And Jesus teaches elsewhere that our money reveals our hearts, Right? Again, back to these filters of scripturally understanding the condition of our heart, we would look at our receipts. That's where our heart is. The only way anyone participates in in in-person ministry consistently 
is a deep conviction that the only thing more costly of in-person ministry is the cost of not participating, right? Oh, but the benefits. Oh, but the benefits. So brief recap, brief brief recap. In-person ministry is sustained and motivated by compassion. It's messy, it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient to our schedule. Some of you are there right now, right? (laughs) Your, Your life... Messy, uncomfortable, and inconvenient because you're helping somebody, and it's very costly. But now let's talk about the benefits, the benefits of in-person ministry. While the costs are high, the benefits are even more significant, amen? Number one, real simple, first benefit is people are helped. People in need are helped. Hey, what would have happened? What would have happened to this man who was left half dead if the Samaritan didn't come along. What do you think would have happened to him? Hey, he can't help himself, right? He's been, as the scripture says, think of what he's been through. He fell among robbers. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed. They left him half dead. He, he, He was badly hurt. Perhaps he would have died. If not death, there may have been long-term physical damage. So let's just sit here for a moment. Who in your life are you helping in a life-changing way right now? Who are you helping this way? I think every follower of Jesus needs to have an answer to that question. Friends, Jesus has not redeemed us and saved us from sin for us to pass by on the other side. Somebody say amen. And raise you up from the grave that you'd live your whole life seeing things and then just go and say, well, somebody else will handle that. Somebody else will stop. Next person coming down the path, I'm sure they'll, I don't have the time. I don't have the giftedness. But do you have the Savior? Um, one of my great joys as a pastor, and I can do it right now looking around this room. See so many that are doing this. Sick are being visited, the hungry being fed, the orphans being cared for, the gospel going forth. People in need are genuinely helped. Second thing of benefit of in-person ministry is social barriers that divide people are brought down. I don't know if it struck you as we read it, but it certainly would have struck the people in that day that Jesus makes the Samaritan, the Samaritan, the hero of the story. In the time and place that Jesus originally taught this parable, there's a clear social application to this passage. His original audience is made up primarily of Jews. And the Jews and the Samaritans, if you know anything about their history, deep animosity existed between them. By and large, these two groups of people despised each other and had for centuries. A Jew and a Samaritan wouldn't speak to one another, never sit down and and eat with one another. Their children would never play together. They would never worship in the same place at the same time. They always thought the worst of one another. They raised their children to dislike each other. They thought everything wrong with the world was because of the other. And each thought that they were superior to the other. So when Jesus, speaking to a primarily Jewish audience, makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, that would have been shocking, unexpected, and uncomfortable for that original audience. But I want you to think about this. The next time the man who fell among robbers was with a group of people who began to say the same old things that they'd always said about the Samaritans. Samaritans are all dogs. You could never trust a Samaritan. I've never met a decent Samaritan in my life. What do you think would have gone through his mind in that moment? You know what I think he brought up? You know what, that's actually, 
That's actually not true. Because when I really needed someone to help me, someone to bind up my wounds, someone to take me to shelter, someone to pay for my aid, when I really needed somebody, it was a Samaritan. For one person now, for one person, the Samaritan completely changed what Samaritan meant, didn't he? Now, you might not be able to change everybody's mind, but, some, but for some, we need to put on a face to the title Christian, do we not? And when, the, and when the word Christian comes up, because of you, sacrificially, messily, uncomfortably, interrupting your schedule, you really bent down to help somebody. Completely changed the conversation, right? The only thing that can permanently break down social barriers that divide people is the love of Jesus demonstrated in this kind of way. The next trait of in-person ministry is the joy of Christian fellowship is experienced. The joy of Christian fellowship is experienced. Now we're going to put a couple of verses on the screen. I just want you to see them. The first is 2 John chapter, uh, 1, verse 12. You're going to see a, a consistent theme. Now, these verses are going to be written by the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul, right? Men of God, full of the Holy Spirit, who really loved people. And they, they're going to express, when we look at three verses, they're written there on your outline. But I want you to see the consistency of what they talk about. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Can I say it this way? I'm not trying to change the scripture or anything, but can I say it this way? Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use email and Facebook. Though, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not text you or FaceTime you. Instead, I hope to come to you, our generation needs this, and talk face to face. You see it? And here's a connection that's made to it. Here we're going to begin to see it. So that our, our joy may be complete. Friends, no matter what app we develop, we're never going to get beyond the need, choosing my words carefully, the need for face-to-face fellowship, face-to-face communication, face-to-face listening to each other. I mean, uh, I I love some of the benefits of and the, and the quickness of technology, but we've all been there. You get a text or an email or something, and, or you see a post, and you don't hear tone of voice, do you? So, so you lose the nuance of, of communication, and, and if we just back up a little bit, who created personal communication? Well, God did, right? God created us to meet face-to-face. It says of uh, Moses that Moses would meet with God face-to-face as a man meets with his friend, Right? Face-to-face encounters um, um, eliminate some of the mistakes that can come across. Again, without, uh, sometimes I've received an email and I thought, wow, that person's kind of angry towards me because of the way that it was was written. And in in the end, it wasn't really the case, or sometimes vice versa. I thought, no problem. Oh, there really is a problem. (laughs) See, I I hope, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. Oh, it's not just John who felt that way. Look at Romans chapter 15 and verse number 32. So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. As a matter of fact, if I just take a quick time out, I actually think this is one of the ways that the church of Jesus Christ can differentiate itself from everyone else on the planet. There ought to be a joyfulness when we come together. Amen? 
I mean, there ought to be, we are refreshed. My prayer, my prayer, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but my prayer would be when we come together for this, for example, worship service, that you leave, here's the two things I pray you leave with, with joy and that you've been refreshed, amen? You can't get anywhere else. You can't go online. We're not going to replace the flesh and blood church. Now, listen to me. I know this very well. I know this very well. You could have stayed home this morning. You could have got your podcast out, and you could have listened to 50,000 preachers that are better preachers than I am. I know that's true. I know that's true. But you know what's not replaceable? Face-to-face. Speaking to each other. Really knowing each other. See, the digital age is you're increasingly some anonymous presence online, and you can make comments, and you can talk, and you can get your fake screen name, and you can live this whole fake life online. But here, face-to-face, is where we actually have to be who we really are. And it's important for you to have people in your life that you can be who you really are face-to-face. All right, let's get one more verse. First Timothy. Oh, Paul loved Timothy. Have you seen the consistency yet? 2 Timothy 1.4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. True Christian fellowship is best experienced in person. You will never, ever, ever have deeper friendships and relationships than you will have as a Christian with other Christians as you sacrificially serve alongside one another. So we want to put these things together, right? Not just that so you come and sit together, okay, we sat together. No, that you go out and serve together in the manner that we're speaking. So quickly, quickly let's talk about the practice now of in-person ministry to our neighbors. How we practice this. A few, a few quick observations about the practice now. We've talked about traits. Here's kind of what it's like. Uh, here's some benefits of it, now actually practicing it. There's one, we're not going to be able to get around this. We do so as we love Jesus more than anything. Ultimately, friends, ultimately, friends, if we're not truly serving others, it is an issue with others, but bigger picture, it's an issue with God for what we're saying. Can't really love and be devoted to Jesus and not be sacrificial towards my neighbor. Hey, turn with me uh, to 1 John. It's almost at the end of your Bible. Uh, you got the Revelation, hit reverse, back up a couple of books. First John, I do want you to see these verses. Um, First John chapter 3. I'm, I'm really tempted to read First John 3, but we'll zoom in on verses 16 to 18. First John 3.16. Now John 3.16 is a wonderful verse, but you all also to know First John 3.16. Same author, different, different book. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. You know how you know God loves you? Jesus laid down his life for you. And then look what he says. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Now you think about the good Samaritan. He doesn't have a lot. But he's got two denarii, doesn't he? Doesn't have a lot, but he's got an animal that he's been riding. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, see, it's ultimately a heart issue, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Oh, man, here's my whole sermon in a sentence. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That's good stuff, isn't it? 
helpful. It's convicting. So first of all, we, we practice in-person ministry as we love Jesus more than we love anything else. And secondly, we do so as we're devoted to people more than things. As has often been said, as has often been said, instead of using people and loving things, Jesus frees us up to love people and use things. And then the last point, and this is probably the most important point of the morning, we do so remembering Jesus is the ultimate in-person minister. Remember, we read the Gospels with the end in mind. So just think about this. Jesus is uh, answering this lawyer's questions, and Jesus kept saying, you go and do, you go and do. But I want you to know this about Jesus. Jesus does what he, he practices, what he preaches. Jesus is not sitting up there on his high horse saying, well, you just need to go do that. Do you know where he's going? This is Luke 10 that we're in, Luke 9. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And all the Gospels emphasize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So I just want you to see a few things. Brothers and sisters, you do not have a high priest who has passed you by on the other side. When you were helpless and you were hopeless, when you were dead, you weren't left half dead, you were all the way there, friends. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and Jesus saw you, he intervened. Amen? And passed by on the other side. And say, somebody else will handle this. You know what? Nobody else could handle this. He intervened at great cost to himself. In the ultimate expression of obedience to the greatest two commands of loving God and loving others, Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. He was wounded so that you could be healed. And friends, he did not pay a day's wage. He didn't throw a couple of denarius, denarii into the bucket. No, no, our, our, our debt was far greater than that. He paid an eternal wage with his own blood. And it's this that leads us to serving that way. We love and serve others after seeing, knowing, and believing how Jesus has loved and served us. It is inconceivable that a man or a woman would understand what Jesus has done for them and the next go-round, come where someone was in need and pass by on the other side. You find that happening in your life. Brothers, sisters, you need to turn around and take another look at what Jesus really has done for you. Please understand that the statement, these words, you go and do likewise, are spoken by the one who is going to go to the cross. So, so, so here's a help. This is maybe what I mean by the gospel should always be read with the end in mind. You need to hear these words as though they're spoken from the cross. And you go and do, you go and do likewise. Jesus on the cross serving and loving you at great cost to himself. And do you know why he was doing it? Because he was motivated by, who's been listening? Compassion. When he saw you, he felt compassion. What is compassion? Seeing the suffering and taking action to relieve it. I want you to think about Jesus in light of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't go from Jerusalem to Jericho. He actually goes from Jericho to Jerusalem. He did not fall among robbers, but I'll tell you what, he was crucified between two of them, wasn't he? Priests did not pass him by. They actually stopped. They actually looked up at him. The scripture says they wagged their heads at him. They screamed their insults to mock him. Levites didn't stoop to help, but I can guarantee you there were some Levites standing by the temple curtain when it was torn from top to bottom. 
God eternally declaring that they were now officially unemployed. You're no longer needed here. Your work is done. But Jesus does offer his life to destroy the works of the ultimate thief. That's the devil. In fact, 1 John says that Jesus said, I've shown up to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, listen to me, if you hear nothing else, Jesus does not pass by on the other side. He actually stands in your place. And that is the ultimate act of in-person ministry. Was it messy? Pretty messy. Was it uncomfortable? No one has ever experienced the discomfort that Jesus does. Not physically, as we talked about on Easter Sunday. Not just physical, grueling experience of the crucifixion. But the severing from the Father. Was it costly? Absolutely it was costly. Was it beneficial? <laughs> there's never been a great... Just mark these in your heart. There's never been an act that was more sacrificial, more costly or more beneficial. So the lawyer with his proud questions, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus is headed to the cross to demonstrate to you, you've never had a better neighbor than Jesus. I want you to stand with me. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask God's help with some things. It's a powerful story that Jesus shares in Luke 10. So if you bow your heads with me, I'm going to just give a few suggestions. First of all, not a, just a suggestion, this is an exhortation in Jesus' name. If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know with great certainty He loves you. He's been crucified for you. He's paid your debt. He's done, what you, he's done for you what you could not do for yourself. You'll never be able to do for yourself. You don't have enough works. You don't have enough good, good works and good, enough stuff to offer. He doesn't pass you by on the other side. He stood in your place. And everybody in this room is going to hear this this morning. He stood in your place, condemned in your place. If you've never submitted to the authority of Jesus, if you've never repented and believed in Jesus, you're invited to do so today. And speak to me at any time. You can come speak to me during the invitation. I'm going to stand right here at the front. If, you, if, if a, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your life, you just come and we'll speak. I'll stand right here. You want to speak after the service? We'll speak after the service. You want to speak first thing in the morning? But I will give you this caution. I wouldn't put it off. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Don't be a spiritual procrastinator. Don't put off till tomorrow what you must do today because you don't know you've got tomorrow. So let's, let's, let's uh, seek the Lord at a time when he may be found. And this is such a time, friends. Secondly, if you are a believer in Jesus, but are in a season of your life where you would confess, I'm not really helping and loving and serving people in this way. I've been seeking my own comfort, my own schedule, my own little life. God help me, I think I'm passing by some people on the other side. The solution is not to feel bad about it. The solution is to Reconnect with your first love. Because all serving that ultimately 
honors Jesus is done out of a love for Jesus. So maybe during the invitation you want to seek his face about this. God, give me a heart for others the way that you have. Go through life passing by on the other side. Father, in Jesus' name, now your word's alive and it's active. Help us not to be passive. Help us not to disconnect and move on to the next thing. We live in a distracted digital age that's increasingly disconnecting us from in-person ministry, from personal relationships. We thank you that, Jesus, you didn't send us a text. You didn't email us. You came, and you came in person, crucified on our behalf. So deepen our fellowship with you and our love for our neighbor, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.